fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. We are now engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who gave their lives that this that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot concentrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far beyond our poor power to add or detract. The world would little note and will long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they fought here have thus far so notably advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion for the cause to which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people for by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Abraham Lincoln. Welcome to Imagine If, the alternate history podcast. I'm your host, Brody Burton. previously read was the text of the Gettysburg Address, delivered by Abraham Lincoln on the afternoon of November 19, 1863. His words have long been remembered from a time and place in American history unimaginable to the residents of today's America. It has long been taken for granted that the nation continued onward after Gettysburg, to win the war, or as Lincoln would say, to be dedicated to the great task remaining. Noteworthy here in the history of alternate history is from across the pond, one certain essay in late former Prime Minister Winston Churchill's collection of essays, if it had happened otherwise. One of these was entitled, If Lee Had Not Won the Battle of Gettysburg. Churchill writes from the fictional perspective of, of a historian in a world where the Confederacy won the battle, of which Lincoln's speech was in reference to. I will link to the work in the show notes. So without further ado, today's topic at hand is how the Confederacy on the famous Battle of Gettysburg and what would have and what that would have meant for the history of our country. Aside from the short term dynamics of aside from the battles and the exact tactics of things. And to do this, we'll start at Pickett's March. Pickett's charge. Imagine. The date is July 3rd, 1863. Imagine lush green fields of southern Pennsylvania, marred by the smell of gunpowder and smoke. Imagine hiding amongst the trees. Imagine you're a soldier under the command of Confederate General George Pickett. New orders have come in, changing your orders from charging directly up the hill of Cemetery Ridge. You've heard that you will instead be meeting up with the forces of other Confederates under another Confederate commander, J. Johnson Pettigrew. 
Half an hour later, the charge begins. The quest to pull the rug out from underneath the Union forces to take the high ground all depends on this march. You run up the hill, rifle in hand. Once you are so far up the hill, the rifle is useless and you pull out a knife. Others alongside you follow suit. Violently, you clash into the center of the Union line. Forces under the Union General Hancock begin to collapse. Melee combat begins between the two sides. The martial culture of the South becomes evident as the Union center completely collapses. The Union right and left come in, but it is meaningless. Confederate forces are com able to completely destroy the Union right before the Union left can arrive. The entire Union army has fallen apart. Robert E. Lee's forces continue beyond the hill to the south of Gettysburg after, three, after the three-day battle. With the taste of victory fresh in their mouths, Confederate forces engage in a sprint and reach the Susquehanna River the next day, July 4th. The target was supposed to be Washington, D.C., but Lee chose the Susquehanna River, expecting that the Union would expect an attack on Washington. George Meade, the Union general, was at this point dismissed. Ulysses S. Grant was brought in from out west. Grant was the only Union general who seemed capable of much, and Grant brought his best staff with him to deal with the Eastern Crisis. This allowed the Confederacy to gain ground out west, retaking Vicksburg and later the Mississippi, as well as the states of Tennessee, Kentucky, and Missouri. Confederate forces would cross the Mississippi and Ohio rivers into Cairo, Illinois, and the North began to see bloodshed on her own soil. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, Lee had been able to engage in total warfare in Pennsylvania on the march to Philadelphia. After a brief battle in York Haven, the Confederacy crossed the river and sprinted towards Philadelphia. The city had hardly any defenses and was forced to surrender. Confederate forces had surrounded and overwhelmed Maryland. Washington, D.C. was gone. Abraham Lincoln, the President of the United States, was taken as a prisoner of war, as well as Hamilton, as well as Hannibal Hamilton, Hamlin, the Vice President. Schuller Colfax, a representative from Indiana and Speaker of the House of Representatives. Solemn Foote, the President Pro Tempore of the Senate. And William Seward, the Secretary of State. With those leaders and much of Congress and the cabinet gone, national leadership began to fall apart. The Confederacy was able to effectively end the Civil War by decapitating the Union's leadership. The now dissolved by default United States became highly unstable. As the dust of the U.S. began to settle, tension was high in the air. Cities began to collapse into chaos and anarchy as North America fell into disarray. But Boston stood still. Governor John Albion Andrews led the Bay State through the tumults. As New York next door fell into violence and Confederate forces battled the Franklinites in Pennsylvania, the leaders of New England looked to Governor Andrew. Rhode Island announced on March 4, 1864 that they would be joining the state of Massachusetts in the formation of the new United States government. Connecticut, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine followed suit. The rest of the United States did not. The 1864 presidential election in the United States of New England, Governor Andrews was elected the first president of the USNE. To the south of New England, Confederate forces were battling against a massive resistance in Pennsylvania. Having occupied the south after the Battle of Gettysburg, Pennsylvanians were very unhappy. Residents of Philadelphia revolted, taking upon themselves the name Franklin or Franklinites 
after the founding father Benjamin Franklin, who had been the forefront on the fight against slavery. The Franklin'ers were able to push back the Confederates out of Pennsylvania and were able to reunite the Mid-Atlantic under their name. The Republic of Franklin was established soon after, consisting of Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey. The Midwest fell into a form of anarchy before the war. Hero Ulysses S. Grant restored order to the region. The military government under President Grant quickly grew through the Western anarchy to encompass Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, and a piece of the unorganized Indian Territory. Grant quickly grew a, grew a correspondence with the United States and New England and Republic of Franklin and granted them military protection. Another new nation to take up the offer of General Grant was Kansas. A staunchly abolitionist state at this point, the years of bloody Kansas were behind it. Thomas Kearney, the governor of Kansas, quick, the governor of Kansas, was quickly forced into a leadership rule not only of Kansas but of the Nebraska Territory as well. They would take advantage of Grant's protection. Out west, the Utah and Washington territories quickly came under the rule of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormon faith, and the whole of the new nation was protected by its own mountainous terrain. California and Oregon quickly merged together as well. Meanwhile, the Confederacy had attacks on its southern border to face off. Mexico was very aggressive and wanted to take advantage of the weak Confederacy. However, Jefferson Davis would play his cards close to his chest and never give caucus ballet to Mexico. Today, the splintering of the United States can only be pointed to by the Battle of Gettysburg. In the 1910s, the Confederacy proved it could not stay together, as it split into three pieces, Texas, Dixie, and Carolina. Both, all the American territories would eventually have to come under the protection of the British Empire. He became the sole world power after the Great War in the 1920s and 1930s. Thank you for listening to Today on Imagine If. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you come back next week. Thank you.